Hi, and welcome to the Tourette Ottawa podcast TikTok. My name is Jimmy. I'm here with Brandon, where we talk about everything Tourette syndrome and Tourette syndrome related, all of its associative disorders and everything like that. So we hope you enjoy this episode. We have a very special guest. His name is Kevin, and he's here today to talk about his experience with Tourette syndrome. Kevin, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. Good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm also here with Brandon. Brandon, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin, for being here. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I've been uh, looking, looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what you have to what you have to say, because I know that um, that you do a lot of really good work and interesting, interesting stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Kevin, you yeah, want to know said... something funny? Oh, yeah, sure. In one of our episodes, we talked about how apparently Tourette's, people with Tourette syndrome score highly on the intelligence quotient, quotient <laughs> and you were my shining example. I was like, well, Kevin's smart, and people, so therefore, everyone with Tourette's was smart. Hey, you got to talk to me a little bit more. Maybe you won't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all so, exactly what, what we're hoping to do today. So um, I guess let's just let's dive in. Well, I want you to tell me about, you know, take me through your, your story with Tourette syndrome and I want to hear about everything you're you're comfortable with talking about about your background and your life so go for it and and Kevin so basically um, in the first episode Jimmy and I told our stories and we tried to start from as far back as we could mm -hmm. including mm -hmm. you know how we were diagnosed and mm -hmm. and what struggles we went through so maybe if you could start start back as far as you can remember and and just you know, chronologically get to where we are now. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I guess since I could make memories and, and, and recall them, um, I always remember having uh, ticks and threats and uh, a lot of them are, are more of these sudden movements where I'll do this or do some eye rolling or <laughs> I'll make a noise like that or something. Um, I always remember, um, I, I obviously, you know, when you're growing up and you've kind of only been in this one body, you, you don't really understand that what you're doing is different than anybody else. Right. Um, so I do remember hearing my parents telling me that my teachers thought I was off or, or different or, or weird and. And this was, uh, you know, maybe five, six, seven years old. So 95, 96, 97. And obviously back then mental health awareness is nowhere near where it is here. And, and we still find a lot of faults in it today. So, I mean, back then, it, mostly you're, uh, you, you weren't really cared for, I guess, in, in, in a sense. You were, you're more so labeled as the weird kid or something right. like that, you know? Yeah. So, and, and I guess going, growing up through elementary school, I kind of felt that, um, in peer groups and everything, you know, always had trouble fitting in with people. Um, my parents always kind of remember me being more of an outcast around elementary school. Um, so it was tough growing up, always wanting to have these, friends and people around it and, and stuff like that and not really being able to take part in that as, as you wanted to right so feeling did, 
did was it the other did the other kids notice and say stuff to you or was it more um your own feelings about yourself that that prevented you from socializing so much so uh well i guess haven't really talked about this too much publicly so um i might as well now um i actually didn't get a lot of comments from my friends um or or the 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 people that i would associate um a lot of it and you know sorry mom and dad here but a lot of the uh problems that went on with uh, self-esteem and how i i felt about myself were from my parents yeah and that was the hardest thing and that is not uncommon yeah and and like i almost wish i would have been able to trade it you know to have that happier home life um rather than than uh it be the way that it was and you know i I always got comments from um i guess i'm not going to go into specifics on who this was but i'll just say of course um you know, telling me that uh, I need to stop being weird and mm-hmm. I need to knock it off. And um, and and I remember, you know, they would come in uh, to a room that I might be in or associating with them. And I remember them even like pulling me aside and telling me to stop it. And and you just feel just it's just the weirdest thing because you, you don't even feel like you're doing anything wrong. You just know that other people are. Are thinking that there's there's something wrong with you, you know? Right. Um, so that was always always very difficult. And and although I didn't have any uh, explicit comments from anybody I knew at school, yeah, obviously I wasn't fitting in with anybody. So that's the only thing I can think of. I, I don't remember ever being mean to anybody or, or anything like that. I was just right. always just hoping that I get to hang out with with people, you know, just like every other kid wants. Yeah, you want normalcy. Um, exactly. You know that not even being popular, but just having a couple people here to, yeah. to mm-hmm. hang out with and stuff. Yeah. And, and so well, when was it that, um, that you actually were, you know, diagnosed with Tourette's or maybe your parents realized that it was something more than just you being weird or did that not ever happen until later on? Yeah. So my, again, kind of growing up in, in that era, you know, um, mental health was still very taboo and it wasn't something that should happen to, to normal people. Uh, any, any issues with that, I guess. Um, so I didn't get a diagnosis of, uh, fixed Tourette's until I was about 15 years old. And this came, uh, actually what, what came first was my, uh, diagnosis with obsessive compulsive disorder. So this so, was 20, 2009, 2010. Uh, this would have been um, 2003, 2004, 2005. Okay. Yeah. So it was about 13. I was born in 1990. Um, okay. So yeah, I was about 13, 14 at the time. And I remember, I guess I have always had certain traits of OCD, but they never really came out until um, I'm so, so there was a place that I used to live in and I did have a couple friends there in the neighborhood. And I ended up having to move from that uh, one year. And that's just kind of what set everything off. 
and high school started that year. I, I left all my friends and then it was just like, okay, this, this little bit of joy that I had in my life right. is now, it's gone, right? What a storm. Um, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And um, so I remember having these very strong, uh, obsessive compulsive thoughts. And I remember um, having to do these rituals, uh, counting and, and, and naming things. And I would stay up until like two o'clock in the morning sometimes on school nights, uh, trying to get through them all. And, and it was after a while that I guess I got caught, you know, by, by my parents. Right. Um, and again, a lot of the, the name calling and the belittling happened once they started realizing that um, I had obsessive compulsive disorder. And even at that age, even at, at 15, 13, 14, they started to um, talk negatively about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was like, them saying that like it's weird for me to do and to stop it and and like i remember you know saying like oh what the hell is wrong with you why, right. why are you acting like this are you on drugs and all that stuff right I mean, the drugs thing at that age was, was a reasonable uh question to ask I right and and to empathize a little bit with your parents i think what parents want most is a normal and healthy child mm -hmm. and you know you can sort of see where it's coming from even though it's absolutely the worst thing you could do to a child with threats yeah but, you know yeah. they're they're probably trying their best with the information they had and i'm sure they you know i think a lot of parents go through some sort of struggle with with kids with threats and and that's something that we actually talk about a lot on this podcast is about um parents that don't understand it um or people that don't understand it they you know, they can't, like, like I said, we are part of this community of Tourette's and, you know, we're more educated about it than, than most people. Yeah. Um, and so we'd probably be able to spot it pretty quickly in yeah, somebody, yeah, yeah. but, but, uh, somebody else, uh, that doesn't know anything about it. They see their kid acting that way. They would have zero idea. I think it's attention because it's not, yeah. because it's not, um, there's not enough inf I mean, there's not enough, uh, awareness about it. Mm. Right? Exactly. And that was the same thing with my parents, right? They didn't mm -hmm. know. So they just thought it was something else, wrote it off as something else and, you know, sent, sent me on my way. So I don't think it's, I think it's a pretty common experience that mm -hmm. uh, kids, kids with Tourette's go through. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree. And um, you see that a lot of that even now in, in school and everything uh, where, where I am. Um, you, you're um, surrounded by knowing about anxiety and depression and and i mean i work with clinical psychologists and training on a daily basis and kevin what do you do for work oh yeah so um right now i am uh as a neuroscience student uh i'm in my fourth year of my phd so i'll hopefully be wow. done next year and told then you I'll... people the rest were smart <laughs> so um yeah and um so I've been doing that, yeah, for four years, and, and my undergrad was obviously in psychology. I mean, after everything that I went through, what else was I going to pick, right? Wow. So <laughs> so um, we do want to get, obviously, really deep into that stuff, but let's go back to um, back to when you're 15 with your OCD. Yeah. And what happened from there? So when um, I actually went through uh, some interesting experiences with some psychiatrists as well. And so at first... What ended up happening was my parents took me to the doctor to you know see what the hell was wrong with me i guess and um uh i started talking about some of my symptoms and my 
my family doctor was the saving grace here and uh, recommended that I go see a psychiatrist. And uh, so unfortunately, my first uh, stop in, 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 the, in the mental health stream was not a very ideal one. I ended up uh, seeing a doctor. I won't go into any names here, but um, he was very invested in uh, psychosis research. So when I ended up telling him what my symptoms were and that I think thoughts that I don't want to, and um, I, I act on, on these problems that, that aren't necessarily real in order to try to control them, um, I got thrown right into the, uh, the early uh, psychosis um, intervention program. Wow. Now, knowing what I know about psychosis and, and OCD, I'm, maybe as a 15-year-old, I just wasn't good at explaining what was going on. But I was going to um, ask you how you articulated it back then. Yeah, it was mostly just um, pretty much what I said there about how I was thinking all these thoughts that I, mm. I didn't want to, and I would act on them thinking that I would be able to change uh, what was but going you, on. You would hope that uh, you know a doctor would investigate that a little bit further. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, maybe ask some more questions before uh, he just throws you into the psychosis category. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I got started on uh, risperidone, actually, uh, the first time I saw him, which is uh, one of the antipsychotic drugs. So, I, I uh, <laughs> took the same drug. I didn't know that was antipsychotic. It can also be used for, um, well, maybe I shouldn't say too much about what drugs do sure. I don't do. Just, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. 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 <laughs> um, just so interesting that we were both well we do that. we do make we do make sure that we make a disclaimer that we're not uh medical experts or professionals we just talk <laughs> two based of, on two experience, of us are so. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> we just talk based on experience so you can continue come back right to uh right after you put you on the pill of respiridome so uh, very yeah very different pill um <laughs> both both would have been wrong for me though yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyways, uh, so being on Risperidone, um, now I was told that I was part of, I think everyone just got, yeah, I was, I'm, cr I'm crying. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was trying to hold it in, but I couldn't. That's funny. Yeah. Wow, got me blushing on my years, own yeah. podcast here, bro. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two years after being on birth control, I realized I should have <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Okay. Um, so anyways, um, yeah, where was I going with this? Okay. So yeah, so I was on Risperidone and, um, I was brought to, um, an epi program as well. So early psychosis intervention program. And, um, I remember having to sit around in a group and talk about our stories about what we were going through, kind of what we're doing on this podcast. And a lot of what was going on with my peers in that group um, was very different than, than what I experienced. And again, I always kind of felt that bit out of place there and I would try to tell this to my parents. Um, and so after a while, uh, maybe three months or so, I, I was pulled out of it and we went to go see another psychiatrist. And then on the first day I was given um, with compulsive disorder diagnosis, also a panic disorder, because I had a lot of nasty panic attacks, um, and, and ticks and, and threats. So that was about when I was 16 at the time, I believe. So, um, and then I got switched over to basically what I'm taking now. 
uh, which is uh, venlafaxine and uh, clonazepam. Clonazepam is uh, one of the ones that you hear a lot about in in, in the news. Uh, benzodiazepine that, that can be very addictive. Right. It's not not good to take. Not not fun to take. So yeah, at about sixteen. But you're taking it. Yeah, I still take it. I have um, I have decreased my usage quite significantly over the years. Um, I actually only take uh, like a half of the smallest pill that you can get, just because mm. I'm really not in the mood for for going through uh, withdrawals right now. Um, mm-hmm. So, so is that is that uh, medication more for the like Tourette's or the OCD or or what is that specifically for? Uh, more for the obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And does it help? Do you, like do you find that it reduces your symptoms or? Um, Unfortunately, I know, and it's not even supposed to be given daily um, because of how addictive it is. You you acclimate to it quite quickly, um, and and it, 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 if you want to go through like some of the withdrawal stuff, we can do that later. Um, but it, it's one of those that once if you don't take it for one day, you just go through hell. You actually get um, uh, delirium tremens. So uh, what you would get if you're withdrawing from alcohol, uh, if you're alcoholic. I'm alcoholic. Um, so very, 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 uh, very rough experience wow. to get off of that. But I was lucky enough that I, I, I reduced it quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I just don't want to go the rest of the, the way right now. Maybe when I get some time <laughs> off here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so after you went and saw your second psycho- uh, psych- psychiatrist, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you were diagnosed with OCD and Tourette's. Um, were you able to talk with your parents about it more openly after that, once you, once you were finally correctly diagnosed or did they still have doubts about it? They still had doubts about it and they were reluctantly accepting of it. So they, they knew that I had it. They knew that it wasn't going away, but I mean, just like any parent would want for their, their kid, they, they wish that it wasn't true. And I think a lot of it was also that they didn't know what to expect, right? Like um, when you don't hear much about obsessive compulsive disorder or tics or threats, um, maybe as a parent, you're you're possibly just waiting for this horrible event to happen, especially when what's going on warrants going to a doctor to, to get this treated. It, it, it must be serious by, by nature, right? Um, but um, I guess... On a, the, the door was mostly closed at that point for me wanting to talk to them about anything. Um, mm-hmm. However, just for, for some, uh, um, to, to not just shit on them. Uh, I, I don't know if I can swear. You can swear. It's fine. <laughs> okay. That's, that's okay. <laughs> we, we do talk about it very openly now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I tell them about all my experiences and, um, we have talked about what had gone on in the past and we are all at, at peace with it. And mm-hmm. I, I do forgive them completely because I, I kind of thought just as Jimmy and, and you were mentioning earlier, just what the hell do you do? You know, mm-hmm. um, parents who were born in, in, in the late fifties now having kids and all of a sudden this is happening and it's just, right. it would be overwhelming for, for them to try to, to want to cling to this hope that I mean, the kid's going to be uh, quote unquote normal, yeah. and and now now they're 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 not, 
you know, it's it's professionally um, decided that that they are not normal, <laughs> and right. you know, you want to help them so bad, but but you can't do anything except yeah. hope mm-hmm. that things work well, right? And, well, yeah. So, so what would you say that your experience with uh, with Tourette syndrome now is now that you know, uh, you know, do you you have uh, maybe methods to manage your tics, um, or you you know how how you how do you feel about your life with Tourette's as it is now? Um, I'm very I'm very comfortable with who I am, and I've accepted that you know this is just the way it's it, it is. Um, I, I I don't really like when I I constantly exhale and feel lightheaded. <laughs> You know, I could definitely go without that. Yeah. Um, I don't like all the neck pain that I have from from jerking my my neck around. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I am pretty open with it. Now, that should be said with a disclaimer that I am in an environment where I I am able to be open with it. Um, there's not a lot of people who are in clinical psychology or experimental psychology who. Um, are judgmental of people with mental health problems. I mean, more than half right. of us, mm-hmm. you know, have have them. Uh, I'm sure combined we have every single thing under the sun just in in, in their group of fifty. You know, so right. <laughs> so, um, you think that uh, by being able to open up about it at work with your colleagues, with your parents, um, do you think that that makes it easier on you to uh, to live with it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, exactly. And I find I'm trying to think of how to say this here. I, I guess you kind of hear, you know, like um, comedians will make fun of themselves first so that other people can't. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a way, being the one to to bring it up and to talk about it Break it does um, exactly it, it does a couple very important things i find um for one it, it, no one's sitting around watching you and wondering what what what, what you're doing right because some people when they know it's a tick they'll be kind of like wait what are they doing and they kind of focus in and try to figure out what you know what's wrong with them um but if you just come out and say it, they're like, "Oh, okay, well, that makes sense," you know, whatever. We we've um, said that we've said that um, honestly multiple times on this podcast mm-hmm. that once you say it, then it's really hard for people to uh, to judge you on it because they know what it is. Like so, you know, most people are uneducated about it. Most people don't know, and so if you don't say anything, then they're just going to keep looking at you strange. And you're going to feel more anxiety and you're going to tick more and yeah. it's going to get worse for both people. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So once you just say it, then it's like a weight off your shoulders and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it can you kind also, of uh, lightens the, lightens the mood for sure. Yeah. You, yeah. You can't fault people for, for judging either, because if they're, if someone in the room is doing something unusual and you know, they, they might look like they're on drugs or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or someone's looking suspicious, like they could, you know, be doing something to harm other people. You're going to be mm-hmm. like, okay, I need to focus on this person, figure out what they're doing. Cause if I don't know what they're doing, then they could be doing something bad. They could hurt me. Like that's your, mm-hmm. your primal mm-hmm. brain thinking that. So 
by being open about it, just like you said, it it uh, it really shatters any any air that's not being transmitted properly in the room. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, too, it's uh, I find, and I know this word is drastically overused lately, but um, <laughs> it's empowering, I guess you could say. Um, that's <laughs> another word we use all the time on the podcast, honestly. Yeah. Because I find that if you if you don't talk about it, it's the things that you're ashamed of. You, you like to hide, you know. Um, but if you're open about it and and you can get to it first, it shows the other person that I I don't give a shit that I have tics. It's just I'm telling you, I I care so little about it and how you perceive me that I'll, I'll come up to you and I'll, I'll tell you about it. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not something that I'm looking to hide. It's something that I'll, I'll talk to you about just like, um, just any other thing in, in life. No, I have ticks. I, I have a car. I like playing hockey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. What a great way to put it. Yeah. And, like, there's nothing different, right? Like there's nothing restrictive about it. Um, and so it may be in our head, in our minds, we feel like people can judge us, but ultimately uh, they have no right to because it's, it's, we can do everything they can do. Exactly, exactly. And um, the, other, the other thing, and, and this has only come up a couple of times, but when it, does it always feels really really great and this is one of my favorite reasons to openly talk about OCD and ticks and everything is that a lot of people have been going through these things for a much longer period of time than I've had and there have been occasions I've talked about having OCD and I, I've described it to them and they've actually confided in me for the first time ever and you feel like you have an opportunity to make someone's life better because if if you've gone that long on that post and, and without any assistance i couldn't imagine that kind of hell that that you'd have to endure and just knowing that you're able to talk to another person and they can realize this about themselves as well. And that maybe they can uh, see you maybe as a mentor or someone to talk about or someone uh, to, to look at for, for getting help or seeing that things are okay, no matter what. That's, that's the best. <laughs> exactly. Jimmy wrote, Jimmy wrote something really nice uh, at the beginning of our first episode. And he shared that. And um, one of the things he said is that Tourette's syndrome is a teacher. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and us being, you know, being able to, to be comfortable with it, we can, we can teach, uh, other people that it's okay to have it and mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. okay that other, you know, we can teach people that don't have it, that it's okay that we have it. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the goal is just to let people feel comfortable and not feel stigmatized about, um, you know, about Tourette's, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it seems like the, the number of people that live in, in silence about it is just, uh, 
astronomical and mm-hmm. that's the worst thing that you can do because mm-hmm. it just makes mm-hmm. the symptoms worse by yeah. trying to hide it all the time and furthering the self-esteem and uh, you know perpetuating this this uh, identity of being an outcast um uh, for such a long time uh you eventually get to a point where perhaps you, you're not able as as readily available to fix it you know? Uh, luckily for me, I was able to intervene at a time where, um, you know, I guess brain's still developing and all that. And, um, you're able to to really kind of revamp this outlook that you have on life. But, for, you know, if you're, if you're 30, 40 years old and you're still trapped in this this isolating bubble, it's much harder to, to break out of that. And that that could be one of the worst prisons to, to, to live in. Absolutely. Yeah. Um... And so I, if you don't mind, I'd like to shift gears a little bit, mm-hmm. Kevin, to, uh, to your, to your work okay. and, and how you got there. So you finished high school, obviously, <laughs> and, and so then you moved on to university. And, and so what was that like for you in your post-secondary education and, and <laughs> onward? So, um, guess, uh, if we want to dredge up some more, uh, uh, bad things. We, we we can talk about the very beginning of this. And I like how you said Absolutely. you finished high school. Obviously, um, well, I did a year late um, <laughs> because um, I I actually barely passed high school. I was um, I never really went to the class. And I hung out with a lot of interesting people. <laughs> um. And I, I prioritized that a lot, and it ultimately ended up with me kind of. I, I, I graduated in the sense that I walked across the stage, but I actually didn't get my diploma until the year after. Right. And then um, I took another year off of school to try to figure out like what the hell I was gonna do with my life now that all that's over with. And uh, I, I went through one year of, of being in, in university and at this point i guess i still wasn't really capable of dealing with a lot of the issues that i was going through and um uh, i guess it was october of my my third semester i i I pretty much like spontaneously decided to drop out (laughs) um i just remember um submitting one of my midterms blank and then going to the library and uh just withdrawing from all my classes and wow. all my dad wow. and being like, yeah, I just dropped out of university. <laughs> and he's wow. just like, what the hell happened? You know, like thought yeah. things were going well. A little so, bit of that Tourette's, Tourette's impulsion kicking in. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, so I spent another year uh, in the workforce doing, um, I used to do uh, insulation. So I was in my early 20s then. And I had, uh, I guess I recently broke up with a girlfriend of mine too. Um, and I remember going back in um, uh, one of the off semesters, so in, in January. And uh, I only took a couple classes. And I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I had gone through 
a lot of counseling at that point for the last year and a half. But it wasn't counseling like I had been in counseling when I was 16 or 17. It, it was a counselor who I just connected with just so well. And she understood me. And I was finally, like, talking about shit. You know, like, I wasn't just sitting there saying I was good. And, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll try not to think black and white. And I'll, you know, try not to do opening this. up. Yeah. Finally, I, I don't know. When, maybe it was because I wanted to uh, get better. Maybe, maybe, maybe she just worked. You know, I don't You were ready for so, it. Yeah. And... So I ended up doing that quite a bit uh, on the time that I was uh, away from school. And, and I came back and I still kept seeing her. And there's just something different. I, I guess I felt like I grew up 10 years in, in that one year. And I came back and all of a sudden I just, I just got super focused on wanting to have something more than... I guess the nothing I had for the last couple of years. And, um, I ended up uh, doing really well in my classes and everything. And I, I maybe maybe I just found a niche there, you know, like um, trying to, to, to get good grades and uh, professors and other people kind of taking notice of, of you and, and finding better friends. And I don't know, I guess a lot of things in my life just started to... to be very positive all at the same time mm-hmm. and um going through through that i ended up finishing my my degree in a couple of years after that but, but the, and, and what was your your degree was in um neuroscience it's psychology oh psychology sorry yeah, yeah you said that and that was back in uh in in uh, bc so i i grew up uh, in a little city outside of vancouver uh, langley and, and surrey and um, so, so once I finished my undergrad, I uh, ended up taking another year off uh, to go work. <laughs> um, I did landscaping for a year. I saved up a bunch of money, and then I went to Europe for a month. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I really wanted to, uh, to, to, to go and do something fun before I was locking myself down for the next five years doing my PhD. So Right. So out of out of university after graduating, you knew you wanted to further pursue education. Yeah, um, I guess like uh, a bit into my my degree, I started to become more interested in uh, the the world. I, I guess you could say like I was no longer just kind of sitting around thinking about how shitty I feel. Um, mm-hmm. and I could see all of the, the opportunities, uh, that there were by, um, pursuing this advanced degree. And it just happened to be in something that I found really interesting. And I, I thought, Hey, that would be so cool to be able to, uh, work in science and, and learn and discover things. And so I, I applied to a bunch of grad schools and. Then I ended up uh, out in Ottawa back in uh, end of July in, in 2017, and I've been here since. Well, awesome. And so then that's when you did your master's? Uh, right? So kind of. <laughs> um, University of Ottawa has, uh, I, 
there's only a couple schools that do that this but it's it's a joint MAPHD. so i just okay. kind of woke up one day and i was in my phd it wasn't uh like i had to do a lot of students will do their their masters for a year or two and do their comprehensive exams and defend their thesis and they got to apply to the phd and then they kind of start from there this was just a continuous program right through yeah yeah awesome i guess the goal is um a lot of the the supervisors that you work with are they'll train you for for the one year and then they get work out of you for the next year and then you're gone <laughs> right so right. they'll train you for the one year they'll keep you for four <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, so now you mentioned that you're in your your last year of your PhD, mm -hmm. and when does that? Um, when are you finished? When does that end? So, um, we're hoping to. Uh, so I guess with the, with the PhD, it's a bit different than uh, traditional like uh, undergrad style academia, where you get your credits and then then you're off. Um, so over the course of the five years, you only got to take about like. Uh, it's like nine or 10 classes or so. Otherwise you just, uh, you're stuck in the lab all day, every day. And right. your, your goal is to publish papers and to, um, create a, a thesis that is worth defending. And when this committee that you've selected, uh, other university professors decides that, you know, you, you gone done it, then, uh, they'll, uh, give you your PhD. So I'm looking to do the actual defense, uh, next year in the summer. Okay, and and so what is your um, what is your work in? What is your thesis uh, about? Um, so so it's it's quite a bit different than anything uh, OCD or Tourette's. Um, That's okay. Yeah, so I look at the neuropeptides that are associated with initiating the puberty response, and we examine how stress during early life is able to thwart the uh, process of developing properly into an adult. So stress basically downregulating the, the important sex hormones that we need to, to, to become adults and sexually reproductive and everything. Uh, we like to look at a lot how uh, stress during puberty will permanently alter the neuronal circuitry inside of the brain for the rest of, of uh, an individual's life. Um, wow. Just to show the importance of what you go through during puberty and how it affects you forever. And, and hopefully better understanding this will be able to um, work towards curating better uh, antidepressants, uh, pharmaceutical interventions, or uh, types of counseling interventions. Wow, awesome. Could, could I ask a question about that, if you don't mind? Mm -hmm. Like what types of stress during childhood are you talking about? Like, um, you know, like, like, is it, um, like trauma or is it, um, you know, like, for example, having Tourette syndrome and feeling isolated and stressed about it? Um, so, uh, both actually, um, anything that gets our, uh, called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. I think I just referred to it as the HPA axis there. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, this is basically our fight or flight response. And um, in, in one study that, that we recently um, completed, we looked at uh, three different housing conditions. And I guess another disclaimer here, um, I don't work with humans, I work with mice. Uh, this is because the process of, of neuroscience requires us to actually dig into the brain 
And as nice as you can ask people to let you do that to them, they usually just say no. Um, Not so, surprising. Yeah. So um, in the three housing conditions, we looked at uh, one that we would call environmentally enriched, which was uh, this, this big cage. And they had the mice had running wheels. They had a bunch of playmates and stuff, chewing block, yeah. built a little maze on the top that we changed every couple of days just to constantly stimulate the brain and the mind. Um, and then we had another group, which is the, the regular housing, I guess, which is a smaller cage with like two or three mice in it. And then we had the one cage with a single mouse in it. So this is just isolated. straight up socially isolated. Yeah. And these mice are so badly damaged that when we actually give them the, uh, the stressor, so the stressor that we end up using in our lab is uh, it's called lipopolysaccharide. Um, you inject it into the, the intestines. And what it does is, so when, when you want to activate the stress response, um, if you were to, to stress somebody out by like screaming and yelling at them or, or bullying them or beating them up or whatever, um, you're going to activate the HPA axis. Uh, lipopolysaccharide is special in the sense that once you inject um, an organism with it, it's going to activate the HPA axis. So you don't have to go through all of these other uh, methods to try to induce this response. It's like an injection. It's art artificial system. bullying. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, back to the, the, the mice here. In the deprived uh, housing group where it's just isolated mouse, the uh, the the lipopolysaccharide, um, I might call it LPS by accident. It's just the acronym here. Um, it actually doesn't even have an effect on the mouse. They because are so, they're already so defeated and stressed out that it yeah. doesn't even matter. You kind of hit a ceiling where the brain is almost just given up on trying to exist in in, in a way that's in any way productive. Um, wow. You, you can stress that mouse out and it's it's finished. In the other groups, we there's huge changes. You give them the lipopolysaccharide and then everything starts going um, haywire in, in the brain. But but you look at this this one group and it, nothing. Changes. Do you um, think do you think that um, I know this is totally, you know, un, probably unrelated, but do you think that the, the third mouse that is not affected by the, the drug um, is just resilient to stress at that point rather than the first set of mice that when they get stress, their whole world falls apart. They don't know what to do. The third one gets it and his life just is un unfazed. Yeah. So um, we, we actually get that question a lot. Um, and it could very well be the case as well um, that the environment that the the uh, the environmentally enriched mice grow up is is so privileged that the whole world just kind of collapses uh, once any kind of adversity strikes. Um, now, now generally, when you have this unresponsive uh, HPA axis, it, it could be a, a situation where the mouse is being unfazed. But I guess you got to think about what has happened that is is making them so unfazed to these other stress. And 
and, and I guess in that mouse's world, things must be so bad that um, that they've already hit this. Yeah. I don't care anymore. And it can't. It doesn't get better. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're unfazed um, by the drug, you know, by being stressed out, but also they don't come down from that stress that they're already feeling either. Right. Yeah. They're already at this 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 level that is so intense that who cares what you and do to me now? So I think that does tie in uh, with Tourette's and and everything that we're talking about because, like I said, you know, being a young child and constantly feeling isolated, like many do, and constantly feeling anxious, stressed out about their tics, about their they're, you know, not having friends, getting teased, whatever, like that could definitely, um, right. you know, at, at some level be similar to the mouse that mm -hmm. just doesn't mm -hmm. care anymore. Right. Yeah. You could and probably be if... socioeconomically rich, but then mm. be thrown into isolation by your peers and parents or whatever, and end up, end up more into the category of depression and things of that yeah. nature. And, and I mean, that's, that's a, a really big and important topic too. And, um, growing do, up, do, it, oh, yeah. Sorry, Kevin. Do you know, do you know at what point, um, like in the mouse, uh, like in the mice, what point their, um, their brains get to that level of, uh, you know, I don't care anymore, like too stressed out to be affected. Like, is there a, is there a breaking point in their development where, once they get to, you know, six weeks old, uh, then they're at that point or, you know, you can save them, you know, by three weeks, maybe if you put them in the enriched environment, then they can get, get over that. Or even when they're at their, 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 um, you know, their worst, can you still move them into a, the better environment and have that effect being reversed? Um, I, I would have loved to have followed up with, uh, the study that we did um to to find that um but based on previous research around the same topics it does look like that that is the case that you can bring a mouse out of uh, is depression depression um if it's brought into an environment that is is enriched later on now but but that would probably not change the um the effect on the on their puberty response that you were talking about earlier like that's already done right uh for the most part yeah um and it's why we do look at puberty um because during that time there's a lot of um organization of the neurons inside of the brain and this is this is why i guess you're told a lot at about 24 years old the way your brain is is, is the way your brain is we have this sweet spot um, during puberty and a bit afterwards where uh, there's tons of synapses being formed all the time. And, and the important ones are maintained and everything else is just destroyed. So unfortunately, one of the, um, the systems that gets a very stable change thereon after is, is the HPA axis, this uh, fight or flight response. And um, it actually does uh, a majority of its development during puberty. And it, it makes sense why this happens. Um, 
so for example, if you look at one of the other major periods of development, um, it's, it's during the, the womb, right? And, and you're always told if you're a mother not to smoke and not to drink. So what's kind of happening here is as far as your genetics go and evolution and everything and the, the way your, your, your body's trajectory is headed, a lot of it is kind of set in stone. Um, but, but there is nuance there to be, to be shaped by the environment. And the reason why we are so sensitive to all of these factors, like the, the mother drinking or smoking is because what we have to do as a developing organism is try to figure out what the environment is going to be like on the outside and start adapting to that. So if going back to, to uh, before there was even cigarettes and, and, and regularly consumed alcohol back 10,000 years ago or so, when we are mm -hmm. kind of shaping in, in, into the humans that we are today, um, we want to make sure that we're developing genetically the way that maximizes our survival once we're put out into the environment. And we can only infer what that environment is going to be like through what our mother is consuming. So same goes with when we're developing during puberty. It's kind of our last kick at the can for our, our development for the rest of our lives. We want to develop an HPA axis response that is adequate for the current environment that we are experiencing because that's going to be the optimal way to deal with future stressors. So if we go through this period of, of lots of stress during our 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, that, that kind of decade there, um, and, and we fine tune this super reactive uh, HPA axis because we're constantly in this world of, of fighting and violence and, and all these bad things, then, then yeah, we're, we're we're developing um, a fight or flight response that's appropriate for the environment that we're currently experiencing. However, if we go through these traumas in our life where we are isolated, but it doesn't necessarily ref reflect the, the environment insofar as it means to stay alive, perhaps we're just being outcast by our peers, but we have access to food and water and all that. And we're not, you know, uh, at a threat of being murdered every couple minutes. Um, right. we're not developing in a way that is optimal for an environment. So we end up developing all these anxiety and these stress disorders because our brain is telling us, Hey, look, you know, you're supposed to be in this horrible environment and fighting off bad guys every second of your life. But in reality, you're just going to work <laughs> <laughs> and, and this right. discordance with, with the environment, with the way that, that your, your brain processes the world, you start reacting to things um, in a way that I guess you could say is not appropriate. Right. And, and so, so when we are experiencing these, these issues, uh, these, 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 these problematic times in our lives growing up and being isolated, it, it's part of the reason why we, there's a lot of comorbidity with, with depression and anxiety, um, because of this, this, this maladaptive, um, response to our environment. Right. It's, it's wow. no coincidence. So, right. And so do you think, I mean, just obviously not medical advice, but um, would you think that, uh, you know, that's what, why counseling and, um, you know, talking to medical professionals about it, like is, would, could, could actually be a helpful way to, to reverse 
or maybe readjust those uh, those feelings of like the environment being, I guess the environment being different than your than than we perceive it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so that's what, the that's the bridge there. You think? Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. Again, not medical advice, but so what a lot of people don't consider and what everybody I think should know is that when you think about an antidepressant, for example, you're taking your SSRI or SNRI, um, and, and you're, you're forcing, uh, the, the, um, serotonin to, to remain in the synapse so that the two neurons for a longer period of time so that you're able to actively uh, fire serotonin across the, the, the circuitry that makes you feel happy and not depressed, I guess. What you're doing is you're, you're pharmaceutically altering that environment inside the brain. Now, what a lot of people don't like to admit, even to this day, which is incredibly disappointing, is that it's not all about pharmacy. It's not all about genetics. When you have these experiences happen to you in your life, you are shaping your neurons. You're shaping the connectivity within your brain. You're changing the brain chemistry in the exact same way as a pharmaceutical one. And just like I mentioned before, you go through these periods of forming neuron synapses and, and losing them. And this process doesn't stop after 24, it just slows down. So all of the things that you had to experience in life that led to these alterations in the neurons, neuronal synapses that led to your HPA axis firing inappropriately, which decreases serotonin, increases, you know, glucocorticoids, make you stressed out all the time. Well, there's absolutely no reason why you cannot reverse this. And counseling, if you took a very extremely reductionist view on it, which, which I absolutely love doing, <laughs> um, you are altering your, your neuronal circuitry in a very similar fashion as you would if you're taking a pharmaceutical. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess I'm just trying to, cause I want to tie this back into Tourette's, um, for, for people listening, but yeah. so yeah. if, if, if someone is, um, experiencing a very, you know, having a very difficult experience with Tourette's anxiety associated with that feeling depressed associated with that, um, uh, because they're ashamed or because they're, you know, they're going maybe through an identity crisis, not feeling like, normal or you know like everybody else do you think that by you know trying to just coming to terms with it and talking about it more maybe even looking at it more positively on an ongoing basis eventually maybe the anxiety and associated depression might alleviate just based on retraining your brain how to look at what you're experiencing no maybes absolutely 100 percent Wow. I would be wrong in every single thing I have learned in the last nine years through education. If, 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 even if that was a me. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's bold. And I like that. So, um, that's, so that's awesome. I have a, 
I have a question for, for you, mm -hmm. Kevin. Just going going back to um, kind of how you explained uh, for things like antidepressants, medication, um, psychology treatment, and not getting treatment. If mm -hmm. you were to put a, a hierarchy to, you know, of course, your opinion, if you were to put a hierarchy to Tourette's treatment, so say you have like a, a mid-teens, you know, yourself at 15, any of us, we're all, we were all experiencing Tourette's in a very extreme manner, I think, at that age. Mm-hmm. How would you go about so that, you know, you just got a Tourette's diagnosis, you don't know what to do. How, what do you think is the best way for somebody to go about the process of owning their Tourette's and, and finding their proverbial cure, whatever that is? I would say that, and I mean, this, this, this kind of, again, it, it's, it's talked about quite a bit just acceptance and validation a lot of our our problems um come from us wanting to be what we're not and um wanting something but it's 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 just not that way you know and i think that if we're in a society that focuses more on accepting this acknowledging this there would be no discordance. Uh, there would be no cognitive dissonance to, to how we are and how, how we wish we were if we were able to just be. I don't see what the problem is besides, you know, getting getting lightheaded or having neck pain. <laughs> um, which sucks, but it's yeah. worse than the alternative. Right. Yeah. Do you think that sometimes maybe people uh that uh observe our behaviors as being you know people living with threats might even overreact to how bad it is like maybe they think it's worse than it actually is and that makes us feel like it's worse than it actually is <laughs> like i mean you know what i mean typically yeah. like my my everyday like uh, i don't if i'm driving to work in the morning or whatever i'm by myself i don't even if i'm ticking it's not like it's you know devastating to mm, me exactly but if someone exactly. else was there it would be yeah yeah it mm. would cause it to be worse like i would feel worse about it right yeah and uh, i mean i think a lot of that um and it just in my experience here is that like part of it is 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 that like i don't want to be doing this but i think a lot of that also comes from just them perceiving me in mm. in a different way it's like you said you know i'll take all night long here if i want to right i can do make whatever yeah noise and sometimes i like it like i like yeah. sometimes how it feels right so yeah yeah like it's not actually really that bad of a thing except <laughs> yeah. if everybody had it yeah then it then it would be fine right then, exactly yeah then it would just be the thing but um so uh kevin i just as we're we're getting close to the to the end of the mm -hmm. of the interview here, um, what would you say if you you know you have an open open mic right now? Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that you like, you know, not like, but the one part of Tourette's that um, that you've come to love, what would you say it, that is? What is uh, mm -hmm. something about it that 
maybe actually makes you a better person? Um, hold on. Let me let me just think about think it. Here. And then after, you can tell us what your favorite tick is. Because we yeah. both have <laughs> yeah, our favorite Yeah, we, we like to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I guess there's nothing about the ticks that that I could say that about, but, but having the ticks, it makes you, you, you have to wear this hat or crown or whatever that tells you that, that you don't understand everything. And you know this because you can see that other people don't understand you and it allows you in, in a very uh, invasive way i guess to appreciate differences in other people and to see the world as this nuanced environment rather than just you know this is the way things mm. should be or should be and it gives you that push to really be open-minded and want to be curious about what's going on in other people and what they're experiencing, what they're seeing. It's almost like it humbles you. Yeah, very, very much. That's great. That's a good take on it, actually. <laughs> I like that. Very That's good a take. good way to think it, it about it. It opens you up to other people's... You, know, you realize that every most people no one's perfect. Have, have something. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah, no one's perfect. Exactly. That's great. Exactly. And uh, and just to finish off, um, what's your favorite tick? What's the one that you like uh, either have had the longest and you've almost built a like a long term relationship with it, or one that you just enjoy doing because it feels the best? Or so the I guess okay the one that I had the longest is probably my uh, my neck, and I do this, mm. and so I hate that one. We're all gonna but... tick our necks now. I do, yeah. I do the head shake, the head shake all yeah, the time. Yeah. And I hate it because it hurts, but yeah. but it's been with me for the longest time. I guess the best one is um, when you do like, like your back, kind of yeah. it, kind of like breathing out, but uh -oh. tensing everything. You know, mm. it's almost like this this core workout. You know? Okay, getting Interesting. Uh, getting nice abs and everything. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us uh, no tonight. Yeah. It was Thank a, you for that was a great talk, and we really appreciate all of your insight and um, and opening up to us like that. Um, yeah, it's been great, and hopefully, um, hopefully, we can have you uh, back on uh, for sure. Later yeah, on. I would love that. I would love that. Um, Jimmy, do you want to uh, do you want to tell everybody about about the the um, email and yeah. the t-shirts for sure? Can, so. You can reach um, us, that's Brandon and I, at tiktokquestions at gmail.com. So that's T-I-C, talk and questions, standard spelling, at gmail.com. Um, you can support kind of the podcast. Really, the best way to support the podcast is actually just to talk about Tourette's because that's the only thing, the only reason that we're doing this for at all. Yeah. And, and obviously, subscribe to our podcast, share the podcast yeah. with as many people as you can. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want, if you're watching this on YouTube and you want one of these shirts, you can email the podcast as well, and we can ship one to you wherever you may be. And of course, um, you can always visit tsottawa.com uh, to subscribe to the the Ottawa chapter of Dread Canada newsletter. You can go to that website and sign up for the uh, by the for the support groups. And like we said, that can be from anywhere it's all virtual now it doesn't have to be ottawa it can be anywhere in the country and um, you can also visit the the tourette canada website to find a local chapter uh, if you feel more comfortable in a community closer to you kevin do you have anything else that you'd like to say i love the name of the podcast um, <laughs> <laughs> but no again i i think what you're doing is amazing and i'm so happy that uh, you two got together to do this and to talk to other people and to put it out like you're doing and I think it's fantastic and I hope that you just keep doing it keep doing it thanks so much we, we really appreciate it and uh, as always we'll we'll talk soon yeah for sure thanks Kevin thank you thank you